You're about to hear my conversation with Leslie Marks. We talk all about the Canadian economy, the stock market, the war on Ukraine and the impact in Europe, as well as ESG. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with her equity CIO, Leslie Marks. Leslie, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here with you, Matt. I thought we'd start the conversation today by talking about Canada. Uh, I recently came across a survey that uh, stated something that I I found quite odd, actually, uh, that 23% of Canadians think that there will be a recession in the next three months. 55% of Canadians think that we are already in a recession. But when I think about the economy as a whole and I think about the job market, it's probably the tightest job market of my lifetime or my generation, uh, for sure. Uh, and, uh, and we have very, very low rates of uh, unemployment. What's going on here and, and how unusual is it? Well, in some ways, I think it's not unusual. And in other ways, we're dealing in such a, an unusual time. And what I mean by that statement is that you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. (laughs) We're coming out of two years of lockdowns and dislocations. And so there's nothing usual about what any of us are going through right now. Um, You know, a lot of mixed feelings about whether one should be optimistic about the future. And I think we're all a little scarred by the last uh, couple of years. So I think it sort of starts with, with that psyche. Now, the things that are, you know, not unusual or, or are, you know, more typical of end of cycle um, uh, data points are related to tight labor markets. So it's not unusual towards the end of a business cycle that you would see labor uh, so tight that you would see um, optimism still uh, around consumer spending because everybody's working, people are experiencing wage increases. But I think what we're wondering when we look at the data is, is that a little bit backward looking? Mm. Because we are starting to see, although we are, although we are continuing to see uh, upward pressure on wages, we've seen labor action related, you know, such as strikes relating to wage increases. But we're also starting to hear from companies in certain sectors uh, tightening their belts, announcing hiring freezes and, um, you know, the, the growth sector, uh, technology specifically, has been very hard hit by um, this latest downturn in the stock market. But, you know, obviously that's related to that dislocation I talked about from the pandemic where you had so much growth pulled forward over the last two years. So now we're starting to see announcements coming out of technology companies that they're reducing headcount. So I think that's a bit of a sign of of things to come. Hmm. You know, just to put into context again how unusual this time is, when you think about 
um, consumer spending trends. We've seen numbers estimating that on-trend consumer spending uh, is about would be about one and a half trillion dollars, and over the last two years, that trend spiked up to two point one trillion dollars. Wow. So you've got six hundred billion dollars of excess spending by the consumer over wow. the last two years. So, you know, when you started the question talking about low unemployment, strong labor markets, we've kind of overspent um, ahead of uh, that strong labor market. And that's why I think it's a bit backward looking. I see. So the the sort of the robustness of the, the spending and all that through COVID has created a framework that people are, despite being in full employment, they're looking for and they're saying, well, it's probably not going to be as good as it once was. I mean, we just spent an extra $600 billion. <laughs> that was exactly. Fine. I mean, <laughs> right. if you put a swimming pool in your backyard, sure. you're probably not putting another one right. in, if you will. And, you know, we're actually seeing that in, in, uh, leading indicators like foot traffic in stores. We've seen mm -hmm. week over week across the retail complex. So when I say across, I don't just mean apparel or home improvement. Um, all across the retail complex, uh, foot traffic is starting to decline by about 10 to 15 percent across wow. uh, most retailers. Um Recently, we heard from Target and Walmart, they were sort of the leading indicators that started right. to bring the retail sector down. And what they were saying is that um, we basically have the wrong merchandise on our shelves, that people are shifting their spending away from things like home improvement goods to luggage. And you know mm -hmm. why people are buying luggage, because people are starting to travel again. Right. So where we've had very tight inventories we're now running into uh, the wrong inventories, which means that we are going to have excess inventory in the wrong places. And that's something to, to, to really watch because in the face of high inflation, um, there's going to be pockets where you're going to see discounting, uh, right. which will counter the strong inflation numbers that we've been seeing more recently. Oh, really interesting. Um, maybe uh, just to take that point and make a, a related uh, question, I guess, um, the equity market has certainly been uh, a tough place to be fixed income as well, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk to equities. Um, and, uh, and we've seen a, a fair amount of decline year to date. Uh, do you think that we are at the point of maximum pain in the sell-off? Hard to call bottoms, of course, but what are some signs and signals that you're looking for? So there's two ways I would answer that question. The first is just to get some perspective or give some perspective, I should say. And when you look at the sell-offs that have happened in history over the last almost 100 years, um, there's been six periods or six years where we've seen a greater than 20% decline in equities. And remember, okay. we, we almost hit that, not, not in Canada, but in, in the US, we sort of bounced at that 20% decline. But I just picked that number because a lot of people look at 20 as, as a bear market or it's, right. it's, it's just a milestone number that a lot of people focus on. In five of those six cases, the following year uh, resulted in a greater than 20% increase in equities. And so the only time in history that we saw uh, multiple years in a row of declines of greater than 20% was actually post, uh, was in the Great Depression, 1931, 32 right. period. And so unless you think that we're heading into that type of 
uh, environment. And I don't think that we have the conditions that would set us up for a great depression here. As I said, I think of this as more a post-COVID uh, dislocation that's impacting markets. And we need to get back to sort of regular uh, times <clears throat> here. Um, I, I don't think that we're heading into multiple multi-year, a multi-year decline in equity. So, so let me start there. Now, the second thing I would say about that is it's, you know, I'm not just giving trivia here. There's a reason why markets um, do bounce typically after large drawdown years. And it's what I like to refer to as the good old fashioned business cycle, sure. which is exactly what I think we're experiencing right now, which is things get overheated. Um, inflation runs hot because the job market is tight. There's uh, too much demand and not enough supply. And I know a lot has been spoken on your podcast about that. So I won't go into details about the supply and demand issues today because I don't think we have time for that. But um, when the central banks remove liquidity, the intention is to impact demand. Obviously, they can't impact supply to right. bring demand and supply more into balance. So I think that that's what eventually happens. And then you start to see um, prices start to uh, come back and, and, and inflation gets under control. And then we start the next business cycle and, and the market obviously discounts into the future. So um, equities would start to rally once they start to believe that we've hit the bottom and now we're going to hit economic growth because the central banks have stopped tightening. So I think that's a good segue into what I'd be focused on, um, you know, coming away from the statistics and, and the way it's, it's worked over the last 100 years. There's kind of three things to focus on uh, to say, you know, are, are we there yet? The first is liquidity, which I touched on. I think once the market perceives that central bankers, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada are done hiking. Um, right then I think we, we we have one important setup for equities to bottom. And I think that a lot of the increases of interest rates have been priced into the market. And we're probably getting close to thinking that we're at the point that the central bankers will have gone far enough that inflation is is perceived as under control. The second is is earnings and earnings is really um, probably the next shoe to drop if, if there was one for equities, which is the revision downwards of earnings that is really only just starting. And it's very difficult to know, um, you know, how far we're going to need to go when it comes to earnings. Now, in Canada, right. it's been interesting because overall TSX earnings, that's been the one market where earnings have been revised upwards because of energy. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it's it's actually been a good uh, tailwind for Canadian equities, and it's a big part of why Canadian stocks have outperformed global equities. The third one is is sentiment, which is another factor that I don't think we're there quite yet, which is that maximum pessimism, where you just get the sense that everyone has thrown in the towel on equities. Um, you know, that feeling that equities are never going up again, right. that um, stocks, uh, you know, sort of that maximum level of fear. And while we've had people be very negative on, on the market, I don't think we've hit that maximum fear gauge. So as you know, none of us have the crystal ball. Sure. It's hard to predict that the point in time when all of this comes together. But those are the three things that I'm really focused on to converge to say, I think we've hit the bottom here. 
Right. And and based on that your explanation there, you think that on the liquidity slide side, we're fairly close. But uh, with both uh, earnings and sentiment, we might have uh, a little bit uh, to go. Exactly. And what I want to clarify on the on the liquidity side is I'm not saying we're at the end of the Fed hiking cycle. Right. What I'm saying is what is priced into the market is almost what we think will probably be the uh, the maximum um, tightening that we expect to experience. Perfect. Um, maybe we'll turn to Europe now. Uh, we were talking a little bit about Canada. Uh, perhaps we can come back to the U.S. But in Europe, it, it feels um, as though it's it's probably a little bit more negative, a tougher environment. I'd say that the war in Ukraine has gone on longer than most people had initially expected. Um, and there's lots of uh, collateral damage or potential collateral damage to the European economy as a result. Do you think Europe is able to avoid a recession uh, under these circumstances? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked about Europe because it's it's topical today on this day for, for two reasons. Um, the, the first is we just saw the German inflation print, which hit 8.7% year over year. And the expected number was 81 so I think it's a sign of things wow. to come in, in Europe and really highlights the extent of headwinds that um, this region is going to experience. And, you know, there's really a confluence of, of events here. The first is obviously um, the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and the collateral damage that that is causing in the region in two important areas, one being energy and the second being um, agricultural commodities, which impact the price of food. So I think to the extent that we are seeing um, the impact on inflation of those two issues, it's going to be very difficult for Europe to avoid a recession. Um, another factor that's really impacting Europe is and that the Europe, particularly Germany, is very impacted by the lockdowns in China, which is an important right. market for Germany. And so I think that in, in that context, um, it's sort of everything coming together at once to be right. a strong headwind for Europe, which was already a lower growth market. So I, I think that Europe is a market, a, a region that is going to continue to need fiscal support right. as uh, the region goes through what, as as you said, has been a longer conflict than any of us expected. And, um, you know, consensus earnings growth for the region, for Europe, is only 3% this year. Right. And it's been revised down significantly year to date. We could see earnings growth turn negative mm -hmm. for Europe. It's also one of the slowest growth markets by expectations um, at 2.8%. Again, I think 2.8 is going to be a really hard number to hit for the year. And so I, I think Europe is going to um, continue to face significant headwinds and uh, will need a very different fiscal and monetary support package than we're seeing in North America. Interesting. There uh, puts the uh, ECB and and uh, the fiscal side in a bit of a bind as well when you have a print of eight point seven on inflation, but you still need to be supportive because of of the challenges that they're facing. Um, maybe I'll, I'll uh, I mean clearly one of the things with Europe is is sort of energy and energy security, their reliance on on Russian gas, and one thing that I've been noticing lately actually is. Um, 
maybe the past five years have been a very dominant, deafening trend towards ESG integration, all of that sort of thing. And what we're starting to see, or what I'm starting to see, are little, um, call it uh, fragments of the market where ESG becomes less important. So in in Europe, you're seeing energy security be more important uh, than the tr the green transition. Um, in uh, in the U.S., we saw BNY Mellon that was fined uh, for misstating and omitting information. And then, of course, you have uh, the the uh, the showman of Elon Musk uh, coming out saying ESG is a scam and uh, weaponized by phony social justice warriors, I believe is the tweet, uh, in response for Tesla being removed from the ESG index. Um, what's your thought on all of uh, on all of these uh, notions? Do you think ESG uh, that that trend towards integration is becoming impaired at all or what, what's your overall view on it? Well, I'll just throw in another statistic to your pile there, <laughs> which is that um, I, I read that the AUM or Asset Center Management in global ESG equity funds have actually shrunk 13% year to date, wow. which right. I think is astounding um, because we've had such a strong period of growth in assets in these type of strategies. But I, I do think that... Um, it's it's a time for us to reflect on you know why that is and what is the meaning of ESG and and just to, to to be really authentic around how we use ESG um, as an investment uh, approach if if you will um, you know to to speak to Elon Musk's tweet I mean sure. of course his perspective is is about you know the the fact that he manufactures um, electric vehicles, but there's sort of a disregard for the other aspects of ESG. For one, um, of course, you know, you can manufacture a vehicle that contributes to a low carbon economy, but you can do that in a way that's actually highly pollutive. I don't, I'm not saying that's the case, but there's, there's sort of two sides to the coin on the environmental side of ESG. Right. And then the second and third is, you know, ESG is not just E, capital E, little s, little g, um, the social and governance aspects are really, I think, where uh, Tesla has been um, more controversial in the eyes of, I think it was the S&P that, um, that this is how his tweet started. The background is that uh, the S&P did not include Tesla as part of its ESG index. So I hope that this will be actually a wake up call or a call to action for the leadership of the company to say, what are the things that we need to do to address our social and governance uh, risks in, in the company? And then in that sense, um, ESG has and, and a spotlight on ESG has a really positive impact on society overall when it, it works that way, that it's the wake up call for for management. And that's right. certainly how we look at uh, the companies that we invest in is really understanding all three aspects of risk, environmental, social and governance, and whether or not the risks that exist with the company are those that we're willing to take on as investors, but also whether or not we believe that the company is in transition and well, uh, well aware of those risks and has the ability to mitigate uh, those risks or address those risks for uh, the future. And so we would call those um, improving companies. Right. 
So I think it's important for all of us as industry participants, um, you know, not to find ourselves in a situation like BNY Mellon, where they're basically accused of greenwashing or overutilizing ESG in, in their um, strategy descriptions, and that we're really authentic around how we talk about the use of ESG as a way to address uh, company risks when we are making ESG decisions. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and Leslie, why don't we, we stop uh, here? This has been a really delightful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Great to chat about the whole world today. That's it. <laughs> Thanks again. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.